Hello and welcome to Dungeons & Drama Nerds. I'm Todd, here with Nick. Hello. And our contributor, Corey Flores. Hi. Today we're also joined by a special guest, April Kit Walsh, designer of Thirsty Sword Lesbians and more. Hello. Thank you for having me. So for those of you who don't know, in addition to designing the Ennio Award-winning Thirsty Sword Lesbians, as well as the GM-less End of the Line, April is also a civil liberties attorney with the Electronic Frontiers Foundation. Yes, that's right. I focus on um, free speech and uh, competition. I work on justice in AI um, and other other areas, helping make sure that everybody has the opportunity to have their voice heard and participate in activism and to try to change the world for the better. Okay, I'm going to have a moment because, wow, you're the coolest person ever. But okay, let's get into the other things. To kick things off, could you describe for our audience a bit more of your background and how you kind of got started as a tabletop RPG designer? Sure. Um, so I've been playing RPGs since I was in the second grade. I ran a little uh, Star Wars game. We rolled dice in a shoebox on the school bus. And uh, I've been playing games ever since. Designing games came a little bit later, at least good games. That came later than second grade. But um, I got really excited when I started to learn about narrative games and story games, where the mechanics were there to facilitate story beats that would be interesting. Um, not to say that I don't enjoy playing a simulationist kind of game with the right group, but the tools that narrative design gives you were really exciting and sort of sparked my getting back into game design. I love that. Um, can you talk a little bit about your inspiration for Thirsty Sword Lesbians? Yeah, well, I, I don't know if you've ever seen media, but it's not gay enough. And <laughs> it's it <true>. could be. <laughs> so I think the, the the ethos in like fandom communities where you know there's something that's not gay enough and you make it gay and also the sense of fun and celebration in thirsty sword lesbians is something that was really important to me i didn't want to make a game about queer suffering or like misery porn or like just telling people that like our life is hard or whatever i wanted to celebrate the ways that our love is beautiful and the way that you know, queers have power or could manifest power or could get to play power fantasies because definitely one of the most common play modes of Thirsty Sword Lesbians is a sort of power fantasy where your problems, they might represent systemic oppression, but you can punch them in the face and laugh at them and go make out with your friends. And that's a play mode that I really wanted. And I tried a bunch of you know games and they didn't quite do it the way that I wanted it to be done. And so I made a game. First off, I love the make it gay approach to anything. <laughs> uh, fa fandom, gaming, uh, media in general. Uh, one of the things that struck me when I was reading Thirsty Sword Lesbians for the first time is how it's such a like delightfully smart combination of a bunch of different mechanics that interact with each other in different ways. And that's one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast is how mechanics can specifically influence storytelling. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about other games that you played that inspired you in the creation process and kind of how you've uh, combined different mechanics. I'm thinking of like the strings and the powered by the apocalypse structure and the sort of many different uh, inspirations that informed the stories that you're trying to tell. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, power powered by the apocalypse is such a flexible framework. Um, you know, when I use that term, I am picturing something that it uses playbooks and moves, little bite-sized chunks of design. Um, and usually it's 2d6 plus a number, and then you're interpreting those to give you upbeats or downbeats or a mixed beat. And I want it to be really explicit in Thirsty Sword Lesbians. And when you read it, you'll see that it's not success or failure. It's what kind of narrative beat happens here, because this isn't a simulationist game. This is a narrative game. So it might be if this were the kind of game where you're you roll to kick in a door, right? You might, you succeed, you kick in the door, but then you find out that your ex is conspiring with the villain already and they're ready for you or what have you. There's no state that stops play going forward. And that's something that came out of both um, PBCA and Fate and other sort of narrative games that was really um, important to me and I think really helps with any kind of action game where you want you want the excitement, you don't want things to stall, you want more drama to pile on, um, at least at least in the early phases of the game, right? Like you want more stuff, and then later in the game, you can use those same mechanics to instead up the stakes. So you're not adding complexity, you're just adding stakes and drama in a different way, a sort of vertical way. Um, and it's a flexible enough framework that you can do that. I will just start by saying the three PBTA games that I think were most influential are The Watch by Ash Kreider and Monster Hearts by Avery Alder and Masks by Brendan Conway. They all do a different piece of connecting emotional beats to the narrative. And so you'll see ideas that are inspired by the concepts that are in those games and the mechanics in those games that I thought worked really well, um, like strings in Monster Hearts, uh, where strings represent a kind of emotional leverage. But TSL and Monster Hearts are not the same genre. Monster Hearts is teen drama of like terrible people being terrible to each other, but also kissing and having like feelings. And strings in Monster Hearts are uh, much more of a sort of exercise of power over someone else and strings in tsl are more like vulnerability and they're double-edged someone can use it to exert power over you or they can use their understanding and influence of you in a way that helps you so it's a different genre um, and the mechanics have to adapt in order to reflect that but there is a gold mine of ideas in the design space of story games and in Powered by the Apocalypse. And um, and now in Thirsty Sword Lesbians, we've got a really neat community of fans designing playbooks and settings for the game and innovating. And it's pretty exciting. I get to play playbooks and adventures that I didn't write in my game. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> I love it. I love that like so many things that you've included, even though they are challenges or like downbeats, they still have a positive result. Like, there's opportunity for growth. It's not just like, and you're completely screwed over. Like bad things are going to happen to you or like you are in extreme distress. Like, even moments of pressure, they they have a reason. Like you said, that vulnerability. I think that's really exciting to explore versus just there's good things and bad things. It's like there's a lot that can happen depending on how your character is feeling and observing the situation, which I think is really cool. Um, but going back to the main topic, I get distracted. I'm sorry. In some interviews, you've uh, discussed exploring mechanics like the smitten move, where you kind of locate the feelings 
of the player and the character? Can you discuss why that's important to you and how TSL explores that? Yeah, so TSL, it both has some moves that'll help evoke a probably lesser or gentler version of the feeling that the character is going through in the player. Um, and it also has, when you're role-playing these sort of charged situations, it's very common for me or other players to be like, I would like to roll the dice now. I have run out of like ability to quip or flirt or be talking or perceived. Let me just roll dice and um, and go ahead and, and have the mechanics help us help us along or shift the spotlight to another character. And um, I think that's important when you want to explore topics that are difficult. And it's also important if you want to play characters who do quip and flirt and everything. And that's not at all a requirement of Thirsty Sword Lesbians. There's, there's, there are several playbooks who are just like awkward disasters usually. That is the standard <laughs> way of being this kind of playbook. Um, and that's entirely valid and supported. Uh, but if you would like to sort of be more of an improver, uh, you can do that to the extent that you want to. And then you have some mechanics to fall back on. And then the direction that you brought up where the mechanic is giving the player a kind of feeling, I think one of the places that's not sort of specific to a particular archetype, so it's easier to talk about, is the basic string mechanic where I can tempt you. If I have a string on you, I can tempt you to do a particular thing. That it might be what I want. It might be something I think is good for you, right? So it, it can be double-edged, but it's definitely... Um, exerting a temptation. And as a player, you know, of course, you get to decide if the character takes it or not. But if you take it, you get a mechanical benefit. You get an XP. And people like XP. Even if you don't need the XP, it can be an excuse to accept the temptation. And one of the things that I think probably fate inspired me the most directly on this point is it can be really fun to have a mechanical reinforcement for doing something that's not optimal per se in terms of you know your character's narrative situation or the mechanics of the game though having a mechanic that reinforces it sort of makes it me mechanically optimal but I want to play gay disasters. I don't want to play necessarily the calculating person who always does the optimal move and isn't vulnerable and doesn't fall for things. It's fun to fall for things. And so that mechanic gives you permission to have those story beats where your character is getting themselves into trouble through their own bad decisions. And that's really fun. I love getting in trouble. I love downbeats. I'm notorious for um, if I roll a six and someone's like, I could help you with a string. I'm like, no, no, I want a downbeat. Like, <laughs> I, I want to I get in trouble. <laughs> well, uh, so when we, we had an episode where we discussed like how to play Thirsty Sword Lesbians for mm -hmm. listeners at home. Um, and Ben, one of our contributors, loved the string mechanic. And I do too. Like the way that you incentivize interesting play instead of like optimal play like this would be an interesting story like this is an interesting direction for us to take the story if this happens um and i feel like especially in like the wargaming tradition and like D, &D like that's not like the mechanics don't support that the mechanics no, don't support you. like 
Yeah. The mechanics uh, will punish you sometimes if you don't do what's optimal, and then the table might punish you because you know you're all working together, and you know that's it's it's a valid game to play, but it doesn't sust- like right like you can play a traditional game or a simulation game where you're all trying to do the optimal tactical thing to play the like tactical mini game, um, but then people you know want to branch out and have more play styles, and if the mechanics are hostile to it, it's just not as good an experience as if you find a game that supports you in making terrible decisions and getting into fun trouble. Mm-hmm. And as a GM, you can you can get attuned to those moments where a player is considering something that would be really interesting and they can't quite justify doing it or they feel like it would be it would be too foolish and then you offer them a string and then in they go and the <laughs> the you know the fun happens. Excellent. Yeah, I had, this is maybe getting a little nitty gritty into the process, but I was curious to ask uh, about the development of Thirsty Sword Lesbians. I think this is one of the th- this is one of the games with a l- relatively larger uh, like team behind it that we've featured on the podcast. Um, just by happenstance of what we've. Uh, featured and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the process was and how you kind of because you know I'm I'm looking at obviously April you're the creator and designer but I see in the there are five other contributors in the credits list many of whom I'm like ah these are people I've you know been following or 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 have heard about their design they're work elsewhere they're all people <laughs> that you should follow and hear about because they're yeah. all great <laughs> So process-wise, I'm the designer, and I, you know, the first draft, I wrote the first draft and play-tested it, released it on Itch. Some people bought it. Evil Hat said, hey, that looks interesting. And then we signed a publishing deal, and it came off Itch for a little while. So there was a sad period where you couldn't get your hands on it. But that's long past us now. And we essentially, as it as the book got more mature and was mechanics complete and we were starting to get ready to um, totally finalize the text it was burst of hope uh, who was a um, consultant on the book who suggested not just including other contributors as stretch goals but making sure that they were in the core book so everyone who got their hands on thirsty sword lesbians was reading stuff that wasn't just from me right like i can't represent all of queer experience and you can't do that with six people either but it's still you know a lot better than um just having one person doing it and so these are all designers and authors whose um work i liked and who were excited about thirsty sword lesbians and i wrote a template for what a setting could look like which became the starcross galaxy which is in the book that's sort of that was the template and then they each contributed a setting along those lines with their own ideas and sometimes custom mechanics and characters. And um, that was a much more structured process than any other adventure scenario that went into the book. Because as I was developing them, right, I released it with no scenarios. And people were like, we want scenarios. Like, okay, uh, how do I make this interesting for me? And the way was every time I released a new scenario, I would experiment with something new and weird. Be like, well, for Sword Lesbians of the Three Houses, we're going to have custom world building and relationship questions. And for Sparkleheart, we're going to have this custom trust mechanic, and it's going to do something special on a string advance. And so each, each setting or adventure initially came out with 
something new and weird and experimental. And then I got an editor. And my editor's like, so what are these? What's the difference between... <laughs> so this is Karen 12. She's great. Um, and it's like, what's the difference between an adventure and a scenario and a setting? I'm like, it makes sense in my head, but we don't... Let's just meld let's meld a bunch of stuff and not worry about it. She's like, all of these are really different. I We need to like template them. I'm like, that makes sense. They're all really different because, you know, that's the design process. It was experimenting with each one. And I think they they stand up as like experiments because a lot of the book, if you read the book, it's sort of talking about the design decisions in terms of this is what this design decision does. That's my favorite. If you don't like that, here's what will happen if you change it. Or like if this one, it's not obvious, but if you change it, it'll break something, right? Um, but it's designed to be hacked and customized and personalized. And the the different settings sort of give you fodder for doing that, um, while also sort of giving you a leaping off point, a bunch of different leaping off points. So you can sort of grab one that is most aligned with what you're excited about and then make it your own. Like, do you want to be in a coffee shop that has a portal to a magical world and fight invaders of the magical forest and gentrifiers do it that's dom dickie's setting it's great and uh you know that's a different experience than um like the violette dangereux uprising in steam funk fantasy setting that uh Jenea kemper wrote there are or the you know holy sex worker paladins that uh, whitney delaglio wrote and they're all they're all wonderful and very different. And that brings me back to something that we were talking about earlier in terms of making it gay, which is there is a sense in which Thirsty Sword Lesbians is genre agnostic because you can play sci-fi or fantasy or modern or cyberpunk or whatever. Um, but there's also a sense in which it has a genre and that genre is queer action romance. It just mm-hmm. turns out that anywhere you've got people, you can do that. <laughs> <laughs> We were discussing um, setting agnosticism and kind of like, do we see TSLs like genre specific or like what are the things that you have to hold on to when you're building this for your group as a game master? Uh, so this is really fun to dive into again today. I, I tried to do that work for you when I wrote the world building worksheet. It should, I love it. you know, if you do the world building worksheet, you should have all the elements that you need to make the game happen and for the genre to happen. Oh, yeah. And it's all there. I think you like left so much space as well for so many different types of queer scenarios. It's not very like rigid in that form. And it, I really appreciate that, at least as we've been like getting into gameplay and stuff. It's really fun because people feel very empowered to make their own choices. It's not like you're on a one track and to play. Yeah. Really great. Well, and that's that was important, right? Like there are two things that are important. One centering the experience of lesbians because that's who I am and am excited, most excited about. Um, and then the other thing is making sure that it can be welcoming to others, you know, to the extent that's possible without compromising the, the main focus. And the answer is to that is it's very possible, right? Like a lot of these, a lot of these stories are, um, you know, much more broadly applicable and even beyond, uh, experiences of sexuality and gender people have said you know like this playbook really speaks to my biracial experience and and so on. i'm like that's really cool i had no way of knowing that you it's a podcast you can't see i am white <laughs> um but uh yeah but i love hearing about ways that things resonate um with 
stories of other marginalized communities and ways that sort of the feeling and message and fun of thirsty sword lesbians um, gets to you know spread far and wide and go beyond my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, here at Dungeons and Drama Nerds, we really love thirsty sword lesbians and advanced lovers and lesbians. Um, I'm a big fan of the Sun Hand. Oh, the Sun Hand is wonderful. She's so good. Um, but we've heard whispers of a new book that you're maybe working on called Falling Deeper. Could you share any information yes, about that? I could. I could tease Falling Deeper. And I don't think I've talked about it on any podcasts yet, though Ooh. I might have. So, an exclusive. <laughs> we can just pretend I haven't talked about it and then it's an exclusive. So, Falling Deeper is going to be. Different from Advanced Lovers and Lesbians, it's a two-person author team at this point, me and Alexis Sarah, who wrote Uisa Revolution in the core book and The Matriarch in Advanced Lovers and Lesbians. And the focus of Falling Deeper is on longer-term play, and in particular, what happens after you've become smitten or you've used the bear-your-heart optional move and lowered your last guard with someone so taking the focus from those will they won't they earlier moments and into dramatic stories that you can tell with a partner in a long-term relationship not necessarily your characters aren't necessarily in a quote-unquote relationship in the sense of like dating or being married you can you can pick a relationship playbook even if you're not in that situation, as long as your characters have that bond, that ongoing sense of interaction, and you're both excited about adding a new kind of spotlight and narrative tension. One of the relationship playbooks that I teased a little bit on Twitter is the rivalry playbook. And mechanically, what this looks like is you both sort of pay XP in and you get this shared playbook that's a lot simpler than a full character playbook. But it um, has some suggested narrative beats and, and a little mini mechanic that goes with them in order to do that same sort of narrative focus on the kind of drama that you're signaling that you're asking for um, by choosing that playbook. And um, it, so in, in a sense, it's a little script. In, a, in another sense, it's a mechanical nudge to help you get those beats between your characters that you're excited about. Um, so that's sort of one of the mechanics there's a cluster of things around more slow burn play. So not just adding to what sort of comes after smitten, but um, changing the pace of the game. Right. Like, and I, I think I wrote either in the book or somewhere else, like the game is paced so that you will probably complete your playbooks, emotional arc in six to 10 sessions. And a character will probably feel like they're not done until you've done two or three of those. And like, that's the pacing. I have selected. <laughs> and and then the the only sort of variant for that is like one shot pacing where you you know it's easier to to gain advances because you're not playing as long and it can be fun to grab an advance in the middle of a session. So this is sort of options for the other end of the time scale if you want things to progress more slowly from the start. And it is a menu of options, um, ranging from sort of things that are very easy to implement because they're mostly just math to things that are harder, but I think also more interesting, um, like setting advances, where as you gain XP, you can spend it to have the setting 
change in a way that presents you with a challenge that will be fun to play through, but also reflects the world changing in a way that resonates with your character. Not necessarily because you caused that change. It can be. Maybe you did it narratively. But it's, again, sort of playing with the fact that this is a story game. We can have the world be developing in a way that's parallel to your personal story so that you have those that thematic resonance. And so this is a mechanical way to, um, to invoke that. And then we're, we're playing with some other stuff that looks like uh, power exchange and mind control stuff, sort of like topics that require a lot more like maturity at the table to handle well, but can be very fun. And then the intersection of long-term relationships and mind control is lesbian vampires. So we are, <laughs> we are including um, the emotional stake setting, which is long-term relationships. Like you've known these people for way too long at this point, um, and you still have drama because you're just messy bloodsuckers. And um, you know that there will be more in the book, but that's sort of what we definitely want to include at this point and have been working on. I'm yes, so yes, excited. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> That's like everything I've ever wanted. <laughs> For the audience uh, at home, Corey looks like it's her birthday today. <laughs> <laughs> also for the audience at home, my nickname is Supreme Lesbian. So we're just, this is really speaking to my soul. <laughs> I don't have much to add to it, but I love this idea of the having like a co-playbook with another player through the relationship playbooks, that's really fascinating to me. And thinking about how like many playbooks have been fashioned as a relationship to a thing, like in masks, it's your relationship to your powers and in thirsty sword lesbians, um, it's your relationship to other people. Um, like how are you a disaster lesbian and what prevents you from like finding uh, one specific thing? Um, and so having this, like, how do two people have a relationship together is such a great idea. And I'm very excited to eventually read it. Cool. Yeah. There was a time when Thirsty Sword Lesbians playbooks were not so well focused on the emotional conflict. And that was a like nice little breakthrough around, you know, pre-version 0.1 <laughs> to, uh, to make sure that they're focused in on a story and a feeling and um, like you said, that then fosters all these interesting relationship dynamics. But um, yeah, choosing a playbook together, it's not, I don't think I've played a game that does that yet. So we got to play test it. <laughs> um, and it's, you can choose them pairwise. You can choose them as a group of more than two. We have some thoughts about like making sure that the extra spotlight that you get from a relationship playbook doesn't mean that spotlight is no longer appropriately shared across the table which are all sort of you know you can have thoughts and then you play test it and you find out if your thoughts are right or not so we will be play testing those probably pretty soon we have a couple that are ready to to go so i'm having fun i'm still very excited about continuing to design for tsl and part of that is the community that's engaged with it and i get to play stuff like the blade soul that uh michelle jones wrote and the Tempered by Christy Freeman and The Admirer by Kona Goodhart, just like people who are designing really neat playbooks. And some of them are in design spaces that I feel like we couldn't we couldn't do in the core book, in part because I can only have so many playbooks in the core book, and between them, they need to cover enough territory that 
people will find a playbook they want to play. Like there will be an experience they want to experience. But if you're writing a fan book, you can make the most specific thing that's like right from your heart that's going to resonate with 10 other people. And it can just be a super fun experience. And uh, that's, you know, part of that is informed by... Uh, my work as a lawyer, because uh, some of the free speech work that I do is in preventing overly restrictive copyright laws and copyright assertions from preventing people from expressing themselves. And because copyrights are usually owned by rich people and companies, uh, and they, it, usually the people getting shut down are the people who are not rich people and companies, and especially people who are trying to express perspectives that are not in corporate media. Um, and so, first of all, there's just you know the general attitude of hack this thing and play with it, but there's also a formal open license, the Powered by Lesbians license, so that anyone can make and profit from uh, as long as they then share back to the community the, um, the same license terms, right? It's not like sharing back money, just sharing back permission to keep building on what they've done. And so I maintain on my itch page a list of all the Powered by Lesbians projects that I know about. Somebody made a huge, um, like Gideon the Ninth, fan hack of tsl <laughs> the like thirsty necromancer lesbians <laughs> something like that <laughs> um so like people are doing neat stuff <laughs> first off i wanted to say i am also super excited for falling deeper particularly because i'm a big i've become obsessed lately with like sl that kind of slow burn play that you're talking about um but I did want to ask about a non-Thirsty Sword Lesbians project, which is a project I've heard you're working on called I Will Carry You, which you've described, I think, as a cozy game, uh, which I'm very excited by. And I don't think we've seen on the podcast a cozy game yet. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what makes a c game cozy, in your opinion, and what I Will Carry You is about. Yeah, so um, I Will Carry You is about a sentient spaceship and Zer crew. And one of the you will you will maybe have noticed that my imprint is gay spaceship games. <laughs> and to me, the experience of being like a sentient spaceship is a really meaningful and gendered feeling in the sense that you have crew, you're interdependent with your crew, you care about them, you're taking care of them. It's a really intimate chosen family situation. And that dynamic is something that I want to explore more in I Will Carry You, right? Like that's the origin of the name is every person in this little chosen family of ship and crew is literally or metaphorically carrying the others. And it's a cozy game in the sense that you have these domestic intimate moments that can be less than epic you can have a a scene about like what's a chore that happens on the spaceship that you do together and then you know like prompts where you you ask sort of you know over the course of doing it what do i learn about whatever and i think that i am going to keep uh a structure where there are also the like drama phases that are not just about like domestic drama um but are actually about like being on a spaceship in a galaxy that's like dangerous and exciting and what have you so it's going to have a cozy element as well as an adventuresome element but 
the cozy element is not going to be mechanically neglected. That is informed by the game um, and making sure that you have those sort of intimate moments, which can be some of my favorites. So um, Girl by Moonlight is a Blades in the Dark game uh, where in the downtime phase, there's like a little social link move and it doesn't have to say very much mechanically to result in really neat scenes where, yes, we're mopping the shrine together and we have a moment looking at the memorial of our fallen turtle that we raised until it died of old turtle age. And that's that's just a charming little detail. It's not going to help us when we have to fight the possessed evil magical girls, but... Um, it will re- actually be reflected in the mechanics because there's a social bond element of of that game as well, Girl by Moonlight. So it's those cozy moments, and you can dial those up more relative to the other moments in the game, and that's what I'm doing in I Will Carry You. It is, I don't call it GMless because it's sort of a distributed GM model where each person gets some cards that they give to another player they have both a narrative and a mechanical side and then the other player can sort of select from the options they've been given to build the conflict for you in that session so it's like a palette exercise built into the mechanics of the game where i am choosing sort of what narrative elements i'm excited about and then from those you choose the one that you're most excited about and then surprise me with it from the things that i said i'd be excited about so that's that's those are that's I think the new thing I'm trying to do with I will carry you is create that distributed GM mechanic. Can I ask as like an aside, um, because you've been talking about like sentient spaceships, um, and I also, you know, you throw out some magical girl references, you throw out some Sentai references. Is this like an outlaw star Melfina sort of vibe, or like a non? corporeal like just the ai on the ship sort of vibe like what's oh, that vibe for you i enjoy both mm-hmm. i do find that when i've got organics living in me they want to make a humanoid body and i'm cool with that i enjoy that too so you know i got i've got i've done both modes right in my mm-hmm. in my role plays um and as a practical matter, like if you're a giant spaceship, it can just be helpful to have a human-sized avatar because the world is is made for the humans, right? So mm-hmm. you've got, you know, if you've got something human-shaped, it helps. Although um, you know, Zephyr, the iconic gay spaceship in TSL, who's in some of the illustrations, there's in the nature witch scene, it's illustrating what a techno witch is. And she is surrounded by just these polyhedra with cute eyeballs on them and tentacles and those are those are zephyr's first sort of remotes right like she is all of those things controlling them remotely and if you look really carefully at the art you will see there are toe beans on the end of the tentacle because because kanisha is amazing I gotta, hold on i gotta google That's this incredible i'm I gonna need grab to, my book yeah. uh, <laughs> to take a peek i'm looking <laughs> I'm looking at it on my PDF now, and it is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody that is not present right now, we're having a meltdown. Oh, yeah. You're going to have to zoom in, right? It's subtle. I was going to (laughs) say, they're small. I got to zoom in on the toe beans. Look at the toe (laughs) beans. That's so good. There are some delightful Easter eggs in the art. Every picture of the spooky witch has a snail 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, the toe beans are there. So as you can tell, I worked a lot of my OCs into this game, right? Like I wrote a game, I did a Kickstarter, I get to commission art of my OCs now. I was going to say, I understand this to be a, a tried and true tradition of game designers <laughs> everywhere, pretty much. Well, because you come up with, I, I have to imagine I'm not a game designer, but you know, over the course of playtesting, I can only imagine you find all these amazing stories that then That's like you want too. to have some afterlife. <laughs> That's definitely true. Um, some of these are TSL characters. Others are characters from you know, fiction or other games that I played before designing TSL, or at least before we were finalizing the art, because that's the sort of very last step after the text and layout are final. But so by then, by then I had a bunch of good stuff to um, inspire the artists. And Kanisha also, Kanisha did the art for the cover and all of the iconics in both books and brought a ton of personality and creativity to those as well. And one of Kanisha's strengths, which is perfect for a queer game, is drawing monsters who are appealing and monstrous at the same time. And that sort of you know, monster-loving uh, aesthetic is a big part of TSL. Oh, yeah. I don't know yeah, if yeah, I yeah, can yeah. say monster fucker on your podcast. But... Oh, you totally can. You can. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> But that is that is the culture that I am thinking of, um, and when you get characters like the iconic trickster who is a mimic, she opens a big old gut mouth from her midsection and has eyeballs uh, where her tits are, and gets to lounge with her little triad um, in the final big illustration of the book. And I love people will look at that and they'll just see the two sort of like humans who are looking at each other like, oh, that's so sweet. And I'll be like, and the mimic is cute too. And then they'll look down and be like, oh my god, there's a mimic. <laughs> <laughs> the German the German translators put that image on a special edition cover of their book and i'm like it's a shame it's a shame that the um the logo is covering up the mimic and like the what <laughs> <laughs> so they, they adjusted it <laughs> that's how sneaky michaela the mimic is the iconic trickster um and for people listening we're going to include all of the names that are mentioned in the description so you can google all of these things and see all the things that we're seeing um but moving on to, we wanted to talk a little bit about Dream With Me. Could you tell us more about like your feelings and tactics game that you've made this beautiful little creation? Yeah, I mean, have made is an ambitious tense to use, but <laughs> it is it it is playable. I was I play tested it on Friday, um, so this is Dream With Me. It's my feelings and tactics game, and it has the queer feelings and the connections the action by default takes place in um in dreams so there's a lot of use of metaphor and there's a lot of weird connection um so the first sort of tactical mission that you do your characters don't necessarily know each other um and then there's a first sort of narrative phase afterwards where you're picking scenes like a missed connection where our characters like almost meet or like have a shared moment of recognition but then don't like believe it right like that was just a dream that's not real or whatever um or else you know there's like a one-sided realization where the in our play tests on friday the um like vtuber talked about their weird dream that they had and one of the other characters was a fan and you know had that realization that something strange was going on because they were in that dream too and um 
So it's very interpersonally focused, and part of what informs your tactical role are the emotional drives that your character has. Um, and then in the tactics mode, it is it uses a map, it uses minis, and the basic action economy is each turn you roll 5d6, and you check to see if you got any like cool Yahtzee combinations, like you know, five of a kind or a full house or a long run. I don't call it a straight for gay reasons, but you can get a long run. And then uh, then basically you allocate your dice. After, after checking for those, you allocate your dice and that's your action economy. And then the value of die that you place on the different actions affects the mechanics as well. Like some actions require an odd number or require a six exactly or require, you know, like three matching numbers. So... That has been pretty fun, and in particular, one of the goals of doing it that way rather than sort of it's your turn, resolve your stuff, it's your turn, resolve your stuff, is to encourage teamwork and conversation as part of the tactical action. And there's also several mechanical incentives to doing that. There are some duo actions that you do with another person, assuming that you have the right positioning where you each contribute a die to it. And then there's like a team super combo where if you each, you know, if you can match enough dice among the whole party, you put them all in, you get in the right formation, which might be like a line if you're doing a Care Bear stare, or it might be um, like a circle if you're like surrounding something. And, um, and then you sort of trigger your combo. So it Focus. It, it it encourages cooperation, coordination. Um, what your super does is informed by sort of your emotional roles, and then the making positioning matter has been an important design goal as well. Because if we're going to be on a map, I, you know, I want to be moving around. I want it to matter sort of where I've gotten my character to. I want movement to be an important resource. And so there are all those mechanics that do that as well as you know there are adversaries, which are generally. Um, like representing metaphorically either something that one or more of the characters are dealing with or a harmful social construct. And then there are also a lot of sites of interest by default in the maps to encourage sort of going there and satisfying that explorer urge. Um, essentially, a lot of exploration of feelings and this like metaphorical landscape. And that's essentially what Dream With Me is going to be all about interspersed with a waking phase. And for the waking phase, I am writing something pretty simple to enable those like intimate moments and so on. But I also plan to, and this is the future tense part of the game, uh, make it so that you can connect this game with something like fate that you are running. If you want like a more active waking phase where you're empowered in the daytime as well you're not just finding your power in your dreams and then having like surviving during the day and having like social moments but you also have the agency in the waking world to to do things and then the stage three in the future is when i get to writing my game about revolutions is making that something that can plug in as the waking phase of a dream with me game that's informed by and then informs the the dreaming action so I'm probably going to have to itch fun this or something to, <laughs> to get get right like the minimal version out and played and play tested and then iterate and figure out how to plug it into other systems um, for that waking phase if 
that's something that people want to explore. But I've been reading like the academic literature on nonviolent and violent revolutions lately. This is I had some time off work, so I decided to do something fun, like read about revolutions <laughs> and design games. <laughs> um, and it's definitely going to make a game. And some of the exercises that you do as an activist planning a grassroots movement, things like power mapping um, and figuring out like your message and who your message is targeted to and who it's going to persuade, who's unpersuadable, what kind of tactics to use, are really cool world-building exercises to do in your RPG. And I think it would be really cool to have an RPG where that's a core part of play. And if you've played the game, you know how to organize a grassroots campaign like in the real world. Yeah. So that's untitled revolutions game <laughs> <laughs> very uh like boal um nick like uh, like rehearsing the revolution yes um uh-huh. from like a theater theory point of view um that's fascinating we uh, we talked about boal last season and we were like it would be interesting if like there were games that taught you how to like do things in life but we weren't thinking about like do a revolution we were like <laughs> Like, what if there's a game that taught you how to quip better as thirsty sword lesbians? Like, hopefully will. Um, or like, I don't know, I, I learn how to swing a sword in a cool way that like could be fun in real life. I don't know. Ah, oh, that's neat. That's that's tingling a lot of neurons <laughs> in my brain in fun ways. Um, you it it is so cool hearing about all of these different games um and like mechanics that you're playing with. Um and it seems like you're you're spreading in so many different directions with them in terms of like the stories that you're interested in telling and like the mechanics that will help support these things. So like what what prompts these different explorations for you? Is it a narrative thing? Is it a mechanics thing? Is it somewhere in between? It's I think it's both. It's usually a kind of story that I want to tell mm-hmm. where you know thirsty sword lesbians isn't the right game if you want to focus on like building your cozy nest in a spaceship together and not worry about having to like flight fight flirty duels with hot evil people who show up from time to time right um but i would like that game and in particular i would like a game that i do not have to solo gm right so that distributed gm element is part of what i want to design for i love just bringing end of the line which is my gmless uh for the queen descended game to a con or whatever like i will play that endlessly it's super fun it's super fascinating just to see what pronouns people use for the ship before you get to the pronoun prompt and they're like oh no we've been calling them an it and it's just it's it's secretly queer and delightful um and I don't have to come up with a scenario or whatever. The game the game will do that work. So I want to invest in making a, a cozy I will carry you game package that will then take out the runtime work of having those spontaneous experiences. Selfishly, as well as because I think people will enjoy it. But like I want it, right? Like that's that's uh if I don't want it, it's not gonna get made. Um and then it's a different set of motivations for dream with me and one of those i will admit as you know i was playing games since i was in second grade i have a lot of minis and i don't play any games with minis anymore i want to make a game with minis that's really fun that i want to play so Mm -hmm. i'm gonna do that 
And that's been cute, because like I go to my minis, like, I remember painting this with my friend. This is their elf from college, whatever. And, you know, I've accumulated those little physical mementos. And so one of the reasons for making the game is to be able to engage with them. But I also enjoy that mode of play. Um, it's difficult because if you are playing a tactical role-playing game, ideally you have a group that is excited both about playing the tactical game and about role-playing to the same extent as you are. And not many of the tactical systems are designed to support that level, the level of feelings that I want, and particularly the flavor of feelings that I want. So I got to make it. So I'm going to make it. I feel like that's such a beautiful ethos and also like something that undergirds so much amazing art in the world. It's like <laughs> there's, there's a thing that I want to exist and it doesn't exist. So I, I will make it happen. I love that. <laughs> well, April, it's it's been such a delight uh, talking with you, and we're all such huge fans of your work here on the podcast. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to plug or let our audience know before we let you go? Well, I'd like to let people know where to find me at um, gayspaceship.com. Uh, if you want to go right to TSL, just type sword.gay and you will be there. And you can find me on Twitter at Gay Spaceship GMS because games wouldn't fit. There are too many characters. Um, but I want you to tell me about your OCs and like send me your doodles of your characters and stuff because I love hearing about that. Um, the only thing I love more than OCs is when someone tells me they figured out their gender or they got a girlfriend playing TSL. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so send me those two. <laughs> We love that. And for for listeners, we will be putting all of those uh, addresses and links in the show notes as well. So you can find them there uh, if that's helpful. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, April. It's been a delight. And for our listeners, you can tune in again next week for the finale of our Thirsty Sword Lesbians campaign. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is great. Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel Dean. Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, and Dex Vaughn. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramaturds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Dramaturds. Nerds.